Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. It's great to be here with you all. Uh, I've been on the road, let's see, four out of the last five weekends, so it feels really great to be home and seeing so many familiar faces and back with you all. Um, first of all, uh, anybody here like Bob's striped peppermints? Yes? No? It's, it's a very visceral reaction, right? Like, you either like them or you hate them. But you have me to blame for that. I, I said, uh, let's mix it up for this week just because... Um, for me, I'm, I'm a visual person, I'm a, I'm a taste person, um, I, like to me, I know I'm a preacher at times, but really for me, I love the visual, I love music, I love taste, and for me, it kind of reminds me of the book of James, it's, it's kind of like a refreshing mint in the Bible, uh, maybe you'll never look at the book at the same way again, but when I go to James, uh, it just feels like it's, it's kind of punchy, it, it feels like it just... He, he gets to the point right away, and it's, it can be spiritually refreshing. So there's a little uh, reason why you, you didn't get your M&Ms this morning. So you can blame me for that. But um, what I find is um, this series on James is reminding me why I return to it from time to time. There are just different books in the Bible that have caught my attention over the years, and I just revisit it. Early in my walk with Jesus as a, as a child, early on, um, they would say to me, you know, if you lack wisdom, just pray. Pray, and the Lord will give it to you. And as a kid, you're kind of still trying to figure out what wisdom is, right? Like, uh, maybe we can define it as there, a lot of people have knowledge, but wisdom is how you use that knowledge, right? Um, so over time, that's come to mean something to me at very um, different levels. I've said to you before when I've spoken that I believe that the Lord loves to answer that prayer. Um, I think one of the ways he's done it in my life is he's convicted me that I just always need to have at least three men in my life that are willing to say the hard things to me. Someone who comes to me and says, how is your soul? And then what ways have you perhaps uh, been... Uh, not faithful in following Jesus, uh, someone who can challenge me, that high invitation, high challenge. I believe the Lord loves to answer that prayer. And in my own life, he's always provided for me three people. And actually, one of the closest ones in that group um, passed away of a brain tumor that was the same that my mom passed away from. And I was uh, really struggling and didn't know who God was going to raise up. And um, in that season, actually, that's when I first met Gene Troyer, and he's had a real impact on my life, speaking life and then also able to say to me the things that are hard. And so I just want to challenge you, if there's anything out of this message today, if you lack wisdom, just ask the Lord. He wants to answer that prayer. Amen? So over the last few weeks, Gene and Brenda have been um, testifying about how James constantly asks us to look at our, our words and our actions. How are we being aligned with the Spirit of God, not just in an inner sense, but an outer sense? 
Last week, um, Gene and I kind of geeked out about this when he was preparing for the message, but, you know, he, he, he kind of alluded to this. He spoke of this in the message, like, when we speak things, we are in the image of the creator. And you know how God created by just speaking things into existence? That when we speak to things that are stored up in our heart, whether it's of God or not of God, we create realities. And that's, that, that's something that we can just keep we can just keep coming back to every week that when we speak life over people, we're creating new life. When we speak death over our neighbor, Jesus says we're, we're murdering them. We create realities with our words. And what a powerful place to be as a human being to know that our physical tongue can wag and speak and bring new things into existence or create chaos and disorder. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What I wanted to do is give just a little bit more context um, to James, um, and then we'll talk about our passage. Um, I, I've spoken about this a little bit now with the tongue, but I want to go big picture. Um, there's a phrase that I say sometimes, it's big theological words, Orthodoxy means that we also need orthopraxy. And orthodoxy means, like what we stated on the screen, um, orthodox. It's, it's the basic belief that we have in our heart about Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That's orthodoxy, right belief. But what James brings home to us is that right belief means nothing if there's no orthopraxy or right practice, right behavior. And so one of the ways that I think about this is that when I was small, um, the gospel message was described to me as Jesus has come because he loves me. He died for me and he rose again, just like we said. And he gives to me this free gift of salvation, right? And it's for us to take and we can't save ourselves. We all need someone to reach in and pull us up and bring us into a new life. I believe 150% in that. Like that is, that's the gospel message. But as I've gotten to get older, I also realize that that, that simple description of the gospel also has a side to it that we, we really need to acknowledge. That, that when I receive that free gift of salvation, it cost me everything. There's a cost to the cross. And what I mean by that is when I turn towards Jesus, when we pray like the prayer of repentance we did today, we are heading in a direction and we've said to Jesus, we're going to go another way and we change course. And it costs us everything. It says, Jesus, I love you. Now my house, my family, my finances, everything I own is now under your lordship and you are in control. And we spend the rest of our lives, and, and I'm not saying this in a heavy sense, we spend the rest of our lives in joy, in anticipation, in excitement about what God might do with our lives and our possessions and everything that's entrusted to us. So I think that's something that I think we all kind of well, I think most of us that follow Jesus, we intellectually believe that, but I feel like sometimes in the church, we spend so much time talking about this beautiful gift of Jesus, and we sometimes don't acknowledge the fact that he's asking us 
for everything. This is why a book like James is so important. As James says, where the rubber hits the road is, you can say all you want about following Jesus, but you better have the fruit in your life that shows that you said yes to him. I don't know about you, but that's hard. That's hard. It's, it's a daily walk. It's a constant waking up in the morning and saying yes to Jesus. Socrates once said that an unexamined life is not worth living. And I believe that that was a hint of the gospel because Jesus comes along and he says, look, see, examine your heart, examine your, your life and see if you truly follow me. I don't have the time to read all those verses that reference that, but I know we've been addressing them throughout the series. So I just want to go to, to Psalms 139 as we head into this part on James. And um, I sometimes have to pray this prayer, Lord. I, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. What does it mean for us to say yes to Jesus and then throughout the rest of our lives say, see if there's something in me that's, that's anxious. See if there's something offensive in me, Lord. Help me to correct my course and walk more faithfully with you. So let's go ahead and look at James 3. We're going to be uh, in James 3 around verse um, 13. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. So if we are to receive this wisdom from on high that God asked us in the very beginning of James to do, right, to pray for this wisdom, and we want to understand God's ways, we need to prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. James is saying, prove it to me. Show me your hand. How are you going to live this honorable life? In Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's handiwork, created to do good works, which God prepared for us to do in advance. Maybe an old saying that I ran into, and I'm talking to Gene about this, I can't find the source of it, but I have always been impacted by it for some reason. That we worship the Lord behind the pew and the plow. Can I get an amen from some of the farmers in Jordan? Where are you? Right? We worship the Lord behind the pew and the plow. And I've come to understand this as we come together on Sunday, like Gene even talked about. We're coming together in relationship here. And we're worshiping the Lord, and our eyes are all oriented towards Jesus, right? But then when we go out on the Monday through Saturday, there's work to be done. We have businesses to run. We have students that we're teaching. We're working in our hospitals, and we're raising our families. And, and we look at where our hands are on the plow, and, and the idea is that when you take time and you do really good work, you, you have those nice straight rows and you think about how you're working with the people alongside of you in the fields and, 
And suddenly, what you're doing in your work is also an act of worship, amen? When you're tending to God's creation in the way that God's called you to in your occupation or in raising your family or just relating to the average person, that we are called to not only with our words preach the gospel, but give a visual representation that Jesus is Lord of our lives. What does it mean to live an honorable life? It means to live above reproach. It means that no charge can be leveled against you. That when Jesus comes to us and gives us free gift of salvation and removes sin's debt and damnation from us, that we then turn around and live a life that is above reproach. I don't know about you, but I'm the one up here holding a microphone. This is currently being streamed live. It is going to be recorded. The internet never forgets. And I have text messages. I have words that I've said to people. I have people out there that can go and watch this message and say, you know what? I'm not sure you've always been above reproach. And these are hard words to hear. But you know what? I'm so thankful they're there. This isn't in my notes, but brothers and sisters, what would life be like if we didn't acknowledge the places where we haven't lived above reproach? It's a much better place to be where we're heading towards Jesus, acknowledging that we fall short, sometimes day by day, often day by day. But it's a much better place to be to say, Lord, I want to live a life that's honorable to you. Do that ongoing work in my life now. Say yes to him. So he comes into, um, sometimes by looking at what it is that we need to be, it's helpful to look at what we shouldn't be. And so I'm going to read through um, verse 14 through 16. But if you are bitterly jealous there is selfish, and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. I don't know about you, but... You know, early on in life, when I was in junior high, I understood what happened when people had a boyfriend or a girlfriend that was always jealous and selfish. Anybody else? Like, it's not that hard to pick up on your radar when someone is being uh, selfish and doing things for their selfish gain and not for your betterment or for the community's betterment. Or... It's not exactly fun being around someone who's in a relationship with someone that's jealous all the time, amen? Like when every action and every call and every behavior is being brought into question, there's definitely disorder and chaos. Never been there before, have you? Never see that play out around us. We've never participated in it. I don't know about you, but I've been around some bosses that are full of selfish ambition. 
there's kind of a slick in the water and a smell in the air and not everything is as it seems to be. There's something underneath that's not being stated. There's some lying and there's some boasting that covers it up. And I don't know about you, but I can pick out all those instances pretty easily. I feel like I have a good sniffer for that. But I can be pretty blind to the times in which I do it myself. That's why I need those three men in my life to say, how's your heart? I don't know about you, but when I'm being told that this behavior is earthly and unspiritual, I can handle it. But if somebody slips a label in there like demonic, anybody else squirm a little bit? You know, Scripture says that the angels that didn't want to come under the lordship of the Lord, who said that they can go about it on their own, were the demons. Have we ever thought about the fact that perhaps if we choose a different path, that we go against what the Lord wills for us, that we might be joining in with the fallen angels of the evil one? Let's just say I spent some time wrestling with that this week. I wrote these things when I was thinking about it just in light of employment. Don't confuse clarity with cutthroat behavior. Don't confuse healthy promotion with boasting and lying. What are the ways that you can stay above the fray? It may cost you at times, but in the long run, your reputation, your ethic is so hard to repair. Christianity aside, to engage in those other behaviors, to repair your reputation afterwards, is so difficult to do once it's shredded. And James concerned about this. These are hard words to read and preach on. But at the end of the day, they should give us hope and joy. It's the reason why I wore a shirt that says hopeful today. That there's a Lord that can restore in spite of those behaviors. Or let's think about that in the context of the church. Don't bless church leaders who are domineering and abused by putting their advancement above the kingdom. It's pretty easy. We can sniff some of those people out. Some of us are even here in this church trying to be a safe space from prior spiritual abuse we've experienced. Well, the place where I've probably had the hardest time living it out is within the church. Because when we get into community with people and we want to be in relationship with people, we start rubbing with each other. And I think it's C.S. Lewis who says that we all have sharp edges. So that means that when we rub against each other, sometimes we cut and we bruise. Well, check your heart when you have the feeling where you want to fight or flight. Because sometimes there really is real spiritual abuse. But other times when someone confronts us and calls us out and says, how is your heart? It's hard to receive and we want to turn away. But the harder work is to stay engaged and to thank that person for pointing it out, even if it wasn't delivered gracefully. James is doing that to us. Paul says the same thing in Corinthians. 
You're still worldly since there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? But when one said, I follow Paul, and another said, I follow Apollos, aren't you just mere human beings then? Boy, this is hard stuff, particularly when we stop and think about it within the church, because it's easy, especially in America. We've got a church on every corner. We can just slip away when someone says something hard to us. But I'm reminded, and I don't know, I, I just feel like there's a real connection to this, that Jesus and Isaiah said the same thing. That at the end of time, Jesus is going to say, those of you who are saying to me, Lord, Lord, and then he said, I don't know you because you haven't lived like you know me. Or Isaiah says that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. James wants to correct this behavior. He wants to set things right. So I'm going to go to verse 17 and look at the last part of this passage that we have for today. And it says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. This is almost another whole message. But what then does it mean for us to think about the wisdom from above? In Scripture, it at times even says that wisdom is like this thing of beauty that we must pursue and lay everything aside to run after. Sound familiar to what I started the message with? Chase after Jesus. And I decided that maybe since I'm a visual person, I'm going to give you a visual image of what these verses might look like to be peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield, full of mercy, full of good deeds. This is not a pushover. This is not someone who sits on the fence and wavers and tries to play both sides. This is a true third way of living. You see, Jesus said in the scriptures that one time he said, did you come out to see John the Baptist because... He's like a reed blowing in the wind. And I don't know about you, but my Western image of a reed is not a very strong, like a long blade of grass is not, like that's not a thing of strength. But Isaiah also says that the Messiah is the one who comes and he is gentle to the bruised reed. And he doesn't quench the dying ember. And if we're followers of Jesus Christ then maybe we're supposed to look like him. And we're supposed to gently handle the bruised reed and fan into flames the dying ember. And see, the image of a reed is actually one of great strength because it remains rooted within the wind. It bends and it moves to the things that are happening to it, whether it's persecution or the wind and the rain and the, and the sun. But it remains rooted It's a sort of beautiful balance between tenderness and rugged, ruggedness. It's really hard work to live in that space, to be a wind, I mean a reed that bends in the wind but remains rooted. One who lives in godly wisdom bends and he moves and flows with the spirit, goes where the spirit blows, but remains rooted in the orthodoxy of Jesus is 
Lord. He's flowing and moving with the move of grace and mercy and rooted in the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. And he doesn't just live in the moment, but he plants seeds of peace for a future harvest of righteousness. Look at this last verse. Those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I want this wisdom from above. And I've given you a couple of pointers to think about when you are within your workplaces or in the home. Just side note, if you have a strong-willed child, don't break it, channel it. Use it, channel it for the kingdom. And let them be a reed. Maybe that's an image that you can use. Shepherd them. Don't snap them off. Direct them in the direction of faithfulness towards the Lord and let them be rooted in that strong will. But I want to give you an example because I can't speak today without alluding to some connections that I have um, when I think about peacemaking. When I was a junior in high school, I had the opportunity to be a guest of a Jewish settlement that was placed on land that was supposed to be for the Palestinians. I met with other juniors who at that time were studying to be in, they were in the army. So people my age while I was in high school were driving tanks. And I heard their hearts. I heard the excitement these young people had of finally having a home and being brought from other countries. I've also had the opportunity to walk with an Armenian Christian who isn't connected to Israel in an ethnic way. He was a refugee from a cleansing that happened in his own country. Another time I've had the opportunity, I've been to Israel, Palestine a number of times, and I had a guide that was a Israeli citizen born in Galilee, Palestinian ethnicity, and Christian religion. He says, Tyler, I'm a Canaanite, and I love Jesus. And we witnessed him as he led our tours be pulled off the bus sometimes once for an hour because Israeli forces didn't believe that he was truly an Israeli citizen, that he must have come from the West Bank or Gaza. I've sat in a gift shop in Bethlehem and talked with a 20-year-old girl who was weeping with perfect English, saying that she had done three years of undergraduate work in Texas and never got a visa to return to finish her degree and was never going to be allowed to leave Bethlehem because of something that showed up that said that she now could not be trusted with a visa. I've listened to an American Hasidic Jew who was so thankful to finally be able to live in Jerusalem. And I was talking with him at the Western Wall in the men's prayer room where no women were allowed and it was very strict dress and everything. You, you've seen those individuals before. And the more that I've traveled, the more that I've realized that there's no easy answer to what we're seeing in the news right now. But when I think about a li living a life above reproach and an honorable way of living, I think about 
my friend who is now probably in his late 50s and that 20-year-old girl, the two Arab Christian. And as they shared with me um, the pain of living between warring Muslims and warring Jewish people, I realized that when I pick a side in what's happening right now because of the atrocities on either side, then I actually find that I am not being present for even my brothers and sisters who say yes to Jesus. And as I witnessed how they both behaved in their context, frustrated, angry, feeling like they've been stripped away of rights. I mean, I literally feel like I was watching Jim Crow, South America, Southern America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when I watched how my Christian Palestinian friend was being treated. But his ability to then turn his cheek and refuse to escalate and to demonstrate an inner resolve like a reed, a rootedness in Jesus, and then bend with the Spirit has never left my mind. And I'm not going to cry on the stage today, but I actually was caught off guard today and found myself weeping pretty heavily. I understand that many people probably don't have that experience. It's hard to enter into, but I give that to you as a challenge because we don't face those kinds of pressures, but maybe we do. What is our witness when the wind blows and difficult things come to us and people treat us wrongly and we're tempted to treat others wrongly? How might we be rooted in Jesus and live in that way that plants seeds of peace? I'd like to invite you to stand um, and I'm going to offer a prayer from Psalms 85 as the worship team comes to join us. Heavenly Father, will you not revive us again? Will your people rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. You promise peace to your people. Let us not turn to folly. Your salvation is near to us. Let your glory dwell in the land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will just give what is good, that our land and the land will yield their harvest, that righteousness will go before us and prepare the way for you. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family.